0: So uh, today I'm rather nervous, I'm on my way into London, to the Audi Quattro rooms at West London Audi, to interview a man who's won the greatest motor race in the world twice. And he's also the president of the Scottish Motor Racing Club. We're just over a week from the 78th running of 24 Hours of Le Mans, in which this man is hoping to take his third man's title. Introducing Alan McNish. So today with me we've got Alan McNish and... Uh how are you doing
1: today? Yeah, very good actually, it's considering it's uh, <laughs> only a few days before Le Mans quite relaxed at the moment. Yeah,
0: yeah we were just uh, talking about how busy the next couple of days mm. is. Do you mind doing all these interviews or is it, is it a hassle?
1: In a way, if you were to think about it in a different vein, I'm talking about something that I've got a lot of passion about and knowledge about and enjoy and probably would talk about anyway. So it just means that I'm talking about it with a lot of different people than necessarily my engineers or teammates or whatever. So, no, not really.
0: Let's go right back to the beginning. In one sentence, can you describe your career?
1: Enjoyable. In one word. Uh, in a sentence, I think my career has sort of had every aspect into it. Lots of success, lots of ups, lots of downs. Um, but it's been very long career now been racing karts 81 and cars since 87 and uh, it's been a pretty thrilling ride along the way
0: you had quite a successful junior Mm. career at what point in that career do you kind of does your head change from this is an enjoyable thing to do to i want to make a career out of this
1: Uh, it was quite a defining moment actually it was my first f1 test in the McLaren Honda in 1989. I was uh, fighting out the British F3 Championship with David Brabham and uh, I signed a contract with McLaren in July that year and it was subject to a successful test at the end of the season and I was in Estoril, and I was sitting in the car and basically in the garage next to me was Senna in the other McLaren and uh, he was coming in talking about feeling the friction in the engine and various other things. I was saying, bloody hell, this car's fast mm-hmm. and a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And I realised then if I was going to sort of hook it up, then I had to be a bit more focused and really take it seriously. You couldn't sort of do it anything other than 100%. It wasn't that I wasn't a professional racing driver, if you like, in a way at that point, but it was a time when I realised that where I was and where I needed to be, yeah. were two different places. Yeah.
0: So, at that point, was, in that test, mm. was Formula 1 different your goal, or was it still, was it just a kind eh, of no, general? I, th- I
1: think in, in that sort of period, it was it was very clear in comparison to today. Today, there's lots of formulas, and there's lots of different options and careers. Like, f- in, in the mid-'80s, IndyCar was only for Americans. NASCAR wasn't heard of, you know. He, You you heard of Rusty Wallace Mm. and a couple of other guys, Dale Earnhardt, but it it was basically unheard of. Mm. Uh, Sports car racing was quite strong, and Formula One in Japan in Formula 3000 for the guys that didn't sort of make it coming through. Uh, But there was a clear feeder route of Formula Ford, Formula Ford 2000 or Vauxhall Lotus, which then took over F3, F3000, F1. Now you've got a multitude of formulas that you can try to make your name in. And so it's a very, very clear process. You, you headed towards Formula One and, and if for whatever reason it didn't, you looked left or right. Yeah. But America wasn't the right yeah. as it is now. Right was sports car racing and left was Japan and F3000.
0: You did work your way up to Formula One as you said, yeah. but then you kind of, as, as a test driver, yeah. but then kind of fell out of it again. Yeah. At that point, what, how was your, how, what was your mindset in? Was it a, a kind of feeling that Formula One dream had gone or?
1: Yeah. It's. Basically, I was testing with McLaren and, uh, the, you know, there's Senna and Berger as the race drivers, so there wasn't really much option unless one of them was ill or hurt themselves to take over the racing. Mm. And uh, then went to Benetton, which had Patrese and, and Michael. Um, and I wanted to race. That mm. was the thing. Testing's one thing, but you need to race. Or I needed to race. Uh, and there wasn't the option in F1 basically. The, the grids were reducing very, very quickly, and teams wanted money to get in, and, you know, Michael going to Jordan required a, f- a fair load of Mercedes cash through Tic Tac to get there in the first place. And so, you know, the your opportunity to get in the door was was quite slim, mm. uh, and it wasn't there for me, so, you know, I had to think about what I was going to do, mm. and I tested uh, with Pac West in Indigo, and uh, they... You know, there's five or six of us, J G Mark Lundell, and a few others did the test. And it was quite clear, as in statement, fastest guy gets a job. And there's no secret, I was the the quickest, but it went to Mark in the end. And at that point, I was thinking, well, what do you do if you can only bring your talent and you do all the criteria of being the right guy for the job and it goes somewhere else for whatever reason? And, you know, that was a a hard thing to, to take. Um, But at the same time, Porsche were looking to sort of change their sports car programs a bit. And uh, I knew some of the guys there, and they asked me to come along and drive the car and test it, and it was actually, funnily enough, first time I drove, um, the other guy testing was Alexander Wurtz. And uh, so Wurtz and I had a a blast around, and then I realized that was a real car, and it also gave me confidence back. Mm. It's a knock to your confidence. You know, if the door keeps shutting in your face, and you can't quite get what you think or know you should have a chance at, then it's a bit Mm frustrating. But, uh, you know, you've also got to be pragmatic about it and realize that F1, there's, what, 26 cars at the moment, Mm -hmm. 24, 26, 26 in numbers, 20 in reality. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's less than any football game, not football season premiership or multi leagues or anything, it's one game, Mm -hmm. and so it's, you know you've got that uh, certainly a pyramid effect all the way to Formula 1 which is makes it very very tight mm. and difficult
0: you did then you moved into sports cars mm. and then you came back to Toyota yeah. how would you describe that season at Toyota?
1: Uh, frustrating if you want the season it was a bizarre thing though because when I signed with Porsche I had a multi-year deal with him and uh, they basically stopped after 98 when we won Le Mans mm. um, and were developing a car for 2000 and they and they said, look, I want you to still be involved, but uh, you can go off and race with someone else. And so I went to race Le Mans with Toyota. Yeah. And uh, then at the end of the year, they can't Porsche, which I went back to, stopped the whole program. And uh, Toyota then came and said, look, you know, we're doing Formula One. Are you interested in like well, Yes. <laughs> um, so it was a, a bizarre way that it actually came around. But the season itself was probably looking back it shouldn't have been any different to what it was, and couldn't have been any different because they you know, were a new team. They were trying to yeah. build a car, race a car, develop an, the car, uh, as well as design and build the next car. And it was a bit too much for them, and they, you know, they didn't have the development rate. Well, they didn't have development rate. Never mind the development rate of the other teams. Yeah. So, for the gentle slide back of performance from the beginning of the season to the end of the season was, was no surprise.
2: Yeah.
0: Toyota, as a Formula 1 team, mm. never really kind of... Hit it, yeah. Yep. Are you glad you, went you left when you did?
1: I had no choice. <laughs> <laughs> it was a funny thing, though, because I realised... I, I went from Toyota, and basically Toyota said, right, we want to make some changes, Mika and Alan, right, we're not going to renew, mm. we want to go with Cristiano and Olivier, I think it was, and... Um, and immediately after that, I got a telephone call from Flavio, and Flav had been watching what was going on. He said, "Right, okay, I want you as a third driver? We're doing the Friday testing and everything else, and uh, you know, reserve driver, blah blah." And my first lap, first lap ever, in the Renault at Barcelona, which was my first test, was quicker than my qualifying lap to Toyota. <laughs> and at that moment, I realised the gulf between people who want to be at the front of the grid and people at the front of the grid was huge. Mm. And it was also the thing that sort of, you know, reminded me about, you know, why are you doing this? Are you in this to to try and win races? Mm. Or are you in it for the sake of being in it?
0: Yeah. You spend a lot of time coming from kind of carts upwards. Yeah, yeah. Is it really disheartening when you kind of get there and it's not how you think it would be?
1: It's like real life, isn't it? Mm. You know, it's, it's no different to... Being in any other business. Um, it's very, very hard. You've got to prove yourself every single day. Yeah. What happened yesterday. You, uh, my dad had an expression which really annoyed me when I was in Carton, really did. He said, You're only as good as your last race. And that's true. Yeah. History is exactly that. It's history. You've got to keep forging your way forward. And if you're not ready to take a few knocks on the way, mm. and that's through the course of a race or a course of a year, never mind your career. Mm then you should maybe look to do something else. Yeah. And uh, it takes a very stubborn head, it takes a very dedicated mind, and uh, it takes, a in reality, takes a lot of hard work. Yeah. And not all of it is plain sailing. Mm. That, I can tell you, and that's for every single driver. It doesn't matter how easy you think it is looking at their careers and how the doors just open up for them. Yeah. Trust me, they're doing a lot of work behind the scenes to make sure that door opens for them and not yeah. for someone else. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't appreciate that. I was naive when I was 12, 13, 15, 17 years old, 19 years old, um, but that's the way it is.
0: Mm. At the point where you kind of move up to sports cars, do you then fully put your focus into sports cars? Or yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, you've got to. Contractually, you know, Audi are my priority without question, the yeah. time and effort I have to put into it mm. means that there's no time to do anything else. Yeah. And uh, never mind the fact that they wouldn't be very happy if I fronted up with uh, somebody else's logo yeah. across my chest.
0: Yeah. If at that point we'd offered you However Manileman wins, uh Le Mans series wins, American Le Mans Series wins, would you have taken it or would you still have kind of hoped?
1: This is where your heart and your head are different things and you've got to make sure your heart doesn't rule your head. Yeah. And uh I had a good piece of advice from Jackie Stewart about that at one time and uh, you know you if I sit back and look at it going to Toyota with the Formula One program and everything else or staying at Audi if I hadn't have moved from Audi in 2000 yeah. then the likelihood is Tom Christensen wouldn't have been in the Audi program because he took over my seat there yeah. so therefore would I have been in the position to take over those Le Mans victories? You can never look back and say ifs and buts and ands. Yeah. You make the decisions, which is the right decision for that you time. at that time, and you live by it. Yeah. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, there's a lot of people mm. would want to have been in my shoes. Going into a Formula One program, being the first ever Toyota Formula One driver, yeah. and all of the things that are associated with that, then. You know, I, I don't look back in any of it thinking, well, if only I had done something else.
0: On your race suit, as we look at you, you've got Jim Russell's racing yeah. school. How did that involvement come about, and what do you do?
1: <laughs> it's funny, because the Jim Russell Racing School used to be run by a guy called John Carpatrick. <laughs> and John is from Annan, which is about 15 miles from where I was born and brought up in Scotland. Really? And so I knew obviously the Jim Russell name from before I was involved in car racing, Uh, Never mind, knowing John, uh, but it has been bought out. The name basically was bought uh, a couple of years ago and uh, it's running out of Sonoma, Mm -hmm. Sears Point. Uh, And they basically, they brought it up to date as in with uh, new cars, new technology, new school structures and everything else. And uh, I know the people that are involved with it mm. in terms of the instructors and also I knew the bosses. And uh, we sat down actually at Stansted, at the hotel at Stansted Airport a couple of, uh, couple of years ago. And it was a, a mutual friend that was also there. And uh, we, we sat down and we were just going to have a coffee because we happened to be there at the same time. And it was like four hours later where we realized that there was more things that interested me about the school yeah. than I expected. Yeah. And about developing drivers and about how you could do something better than it had been done before. And also from their point of view, uh, the, the school itself has got the FDR 50, mm-hmm. which is uh, it's the Lola F3 chassis. It's a race winning chassis. It runs with um, a Mitsu engine, which has got 200 or 300 horsepower, depending on it's school trim or race trim and also with Yoko um, slick race tires, so it's a pucker thing, and I think it's also very relevant to what a driver will have to do. You know, now you need downforce. Look in in the UK, Harry Tinknell, it's a young driver that I'm involved with. Harry, straight into Formula Renault, downforce and slicks, out of cars, into something that's equitable Mm. in terms of his feeling for it, and they get on with it straight away. And uh, in America, it's not like that so much because they don't have the carting background that we do in Europe for start. Yeah. But also they've got, they, they required, in my opinion, and also in JR's opinion, uh, something that was more relevant to how they were gonna have to develop. They were gonna have to learn downforce, gonna have to learn tire technology, they were gonna have to learn what horsepower and the delivery of horsepower feels like. Yeah. And uh, that's where they sort of, the programs Started to come through with the Jim Russell School. Yeah. The other aspect to to them is that they also run all the Audi sports car experiences in North America. Oh yeah. And so there was a secondary yeah. sort of side to to this that uh, politically, within my involvements with Audi and everything else, then it fitted because the you know it's important that uh, we've got. I would say, I, I feel it's important that the involvements are at the like right level and can be done in the right way. And I knew that. Uh, obviously, I knew the Jim Russell people mm-hmm. on their own, yeah. um, but also, you know, it's a it's a definitely a rubber stamp. If Audi of North America yeah. are uh, running their programs yeah. through those same people with those same structures,
2: mm.
0: do you think it is important for all professional drivers to have some sort of influence or impact in the development of younger drivers, or do you think there's something to be said for kind of leaving them to be doing it themselves, like you and? Other you people can't.
1: No, I wasn't necessarily left. You know, I had Jackie Stewart was at the end of the telephone if I needed it, mm-hmm. or Ron Dennis, or whoever coming through my career. Um, I, I'm not. I'll take Harry as a case in point. I think guidance is important, but I don't think mollycoddling. Everyone's got to learn the lessons themselves. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's a pretty tough playground out there, and so you've got to learn what it's like. Mm-hmm. You know, the bit of rough and tumble at at break time. Um, and you've got to stand up for yourself because nobody else is driving the car. Mm. But then again, you've also got to... Uh, I think there's there's areas where you can sort of guide people down directions, and that's what's also happening with the school in terms of that side of things as well as uh, what we've to do over here. Mm.
0: So it's more of a... You, you feel it's more of a mentoring role than a... I don't know... Than it depends a, what you're talking about. In My terms JR of JR or... In terms of, yeah, in terms of... Not just you, but in terms of other professional drivers helping
1: I think there's two aspects to that side of well three things one I do believe we've got to give something back we've taken out of motor racing uh, we've had good careers good lifestyles we've uh, had we've not been doing a mundane 95 job and uh, we've had a lot of enjoyment out of living our dreams and lives and everything else through racing so I think there is an element that you should give something back to that first of all second of all is that can be two sides of it one uh, is by your sort of guidance your mentoring ship and I've I've got this through the Scottish Motor Racing Club so I'm the president of that as well and that's one aspect to it and the second aspect to it is is like like with Harry which is uh, more a sort of management as well a career advice and uh, getting into the a bit more of the nitty-gritty mm-hmm. aspect of helping him develop his career going forward. I wouldn't say developing his career, because helping him develop. And then on the Jim Russell side, we've got it where it's in a programme of a, a racing school going forward and uh, then trying to influence their careers as they, they develop forward. But the important thing over there is we've got the racing tools to for America yeah. to... Give them the opportunities that they don't have um, to understand what the game is all about, yeah. and that's you know in PR as well as it is with driving. It's understanding you know how the car works technically, how the car works, yeah. how tire development happens, how all of these other areas impact on it. You can't just be a fast racing driver, which is what most people think at the age of sixteen coming out of a car. Yeah. I'll drive fast and that'll be enough. Sorry, that's ten percent of what you're going to have to need to be.
0: Yeah. Let's go to the only a week away. Yeah. How are you
1: feeling about it? Looking forward to it now. You know, we've had all the endurance tests, which have went pretty well, mm. I have to say. Uh, we've had two races, which I suppose the performance has been slightly better than expected. A bit disappointing not to win Spa or to finish second. Mm. But then again, with the Aero that we ran from Le Mans spec, then that was really hampering us around there. Mm. And uh, we're more competitive than I thought we were going to be. So in that side of things, uh, looking forward to it, but kind of just want to get on with it now. Mm. I um, I just want to get on with it. Champing <laughs> at the bit.
0: Uh, apart from the racing part of the what's your favorite part of that week?
1: Standing on the podium spraying the champagne. <laughs> uh, apart from the race.
0: it's a long week and there's a lot of It's a long week. There's it a is a long week. Before you even got to the race. Yes,
1: it's a really long and tiring week. And Saturday morning, uh, when you get the warm-up at 9 o'clock and you've been at the tracks since 7.15, so you're up at 6.30, and uh, you've been in your bed at 2 o'clock in the morning from the Wednesday and Thursday night, then it's a long week. Probably for me, the most enjoyable part about it is uh, the start, getting there on Monday for the the scrutineering, the first meeting and everything else, because that's when everyone's, hey, good to see you, you ready? Right, come on, then H, come on, Lena, Dindo Tom, let's get stuck in. Uh, then after that, it becomes busy and it becomes professional, it becomes focused and it becomes less enjoyable. And the next enjoyable point is spraying the champagne in the podium. Yeah. That's, that's it.
0: If we go back to your first ever lapse at Le Mans.
1: Bloody Friday. Yeah.
0: Terrifying. You leave the pit lane, you're strapped in, you come down the mountain straight And you think How you're you doing a. To
1: break? Yeah, but you think you're doing a thousand miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it seriously and it still is this time will be no different the first time I had driven Formula 1 cars Indy cars at over 200 mile an hour but when you're blasting down through a country road <laughs> at 215 mile an hour yeah. and you just see an cold barrier passing through the left hand side and then there's suddenly the house and then there's a chicane coming up and you've got to stamp on those brakes and there's a tyre barrier in front of you it feels like you're doing a 1000 mile an hour really is and the high average speed of that place is the thing that really gets you yeah. and you, you think you're sort of quite controlled and then you get to Porsche curves and then it gets narrow and over the bridge and blind and you're still honking through at 150, 160 and it's it's something that takes you probably five or six laps so when you take say five or six laps you're talking about half an hour yeah. to for your brain to calm down and to realise that you know, this is what it was like last year and the year before. But it's so unlike anything else.
0: How do you prepare for such a weekend like that? And how did you kind of, clearly now you've done it quite a few more times, but when you first start doing it, how to you prepare for such a, because it's, it's a huge I survey. don't
1: think you can. I don't think it's easy. I had Stefan Artelli, who taught me quite a lot about the place mm. as a teammate. And Steph knew it from GT cars, and he taught me where to go and where not to go and what to think about and what not to think about. But trying to prepare for the week You've got to go through it. And the first year you do it, Nigel Manson will find it. It's tiring. Mm. Uh, it's just a, it's a drain. Mm. And you've got to try and conserve that energy as much as you can.
2: Yeah.
0: Last year, you finished third. <laughs> and Aldi <laughs> didn't do great overall. Ultimately, why do you not think the performance was up to the standard that has been in past years?
1: I think uh, if we go back into it, we didn't have the best preparation. We had a couple of accidents in our endurance tests, we had uh, rain that rained off an endurance test and so some of it some of our preparation deficit was in our making some of it was just nature and by the time we got to Le Mans without any test day and with the first night's qualifying being wet so we only had really four hours to try and qualify and set up the car and everything else, and we missed the setup. Mm. We, we missed the setup, mm. and then we had some reliability issues at the end of the race that uh, actually we had no comprehension was going to come at all. Yeah. It only started in the first hour where there was a hint that something could be going wrong, yeah. and uh, that was a bit of a shock. But uh, you know, you don't lose Le Mans generally at Le Mans; yeah. you lose it before you get there or you give yourself the chance to win it before you get there.
0: Yeah. This year is the R- R15 bus.
1: Yeah.
0: How different is the car compared to last year and what is the Quite difference?
1: massively. Regulations have played a big factor in that. We've got uh, a smaller restrictor. Mm-hmm. We've got less turbo boost, which affects torque and horsepower. So, therefore, the aero downforce to drag ratio has changed. We need to improve our efficiency in the straights. We don't have the power to basically pull down force yeah. and uh, that uh, that in conjunction with the aero reg changes at the back and the front of the car yeah. dictated by the ACO meant that uh, it's quite a different looking car. Yeah. It's still very aggressive and uh, I prefer it with the colour on it than when it's in black carbon. Yeah. But also there's been a lot of detail in the car that doesn't necessarily open itself up to the naked eye.
2: Mm.
1: for. I would say ease of working, yeah. ease of racing. From the cockpit point of view, the, the positions are all a little bit better, the switch panels yeah. and things like that are a wee bit nicer, yeah. easier to to work with. Uh, we've done a lot of detail as well as the, the big part about it. I, l- I would say the majority is tuning itself to regulations and also tuning itself to what we learned last year at Le Mans in the race, in that first 12 hours. Yeah. This year? We wouldn't be here if we didn't.
0: If we come back here in 12 months' time, how did Le Mans go for Audi and how did Le Mans go for
1: you? I'm just looking from a crystal ball here. <laughs> if you think of Le Mans, you know, he can't say what it's going to be like in advance because we know where we are, yeah. but we don't know exactly where Peugeot are. We've got very good understanding of where they probably will be but we don't know 100% C- on the first lap of Le Mans last year was the first indication I realised we were in trouble yeah. so until that point we looked as if we could probably even though we were on the back foot pull it out of the bag a wee bit but we, we couldn't and we didn't I think we're uh, a lot better prepared as I said yeah. and I think we've got uh, a strong team mentally, physically and we've got a good car so it'll be a hell of a fight. That I can tell you, it will be a hell of a fight. And uh, from my point of view, I've had enough times of leading Le Mans it slip away from me yeah. to know that uh, it can be a very cruel mistress, but a very exciting one as well. So, how I think our preparations good enough to take the challenge to them mm-hmm. and to win it, yeah. but we'll find out a week and Sunday.
0: Thank you very much. No problems. That was Feeder Series meets Alan McNish. For more information on the Feeder Series, visit www.feederseries.net.